Welcome to the Your Story is Our Story podcast, brought to you by the new 3Rs.org, which is dedicated to telling the social justice stories of yesterday and today. My name is Neil Foote, host of this podcast, where we will have honest, heartfelt, and heart-wrenching conversations about race and culture in our communities. This podcast is our simple way of helping you to join us in our mission, which simply says, by using stories of social justice to dismantle racism, the new three R's unlock civic and compassionate leadership at school, at home, and at work. We offer programs and resources to educate and empower children, parents, educators, and workplace leaders through a lens of racial justice and racial awareness. The new three R's educates and empowers through the art of social justice storytelling, building relationships and fostering a sense of responsibility. We are creating a more civic and compassionate society, one child at a time. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to follow us on social at the new three R's. That's the new N-E-W, the number three R's. Welcome to the third part of our three-part series where we are having a fascinating conversation with three parents in New York City who are fighting for change in one of the nation's most segregated public school systems. In this episode, Camille Casaretti, Naomi Pena, and Shino Tinikua talk about their leadership roles in local school districts, offer their advice on empowering parents to take charge of their children's educations, and share their hopes for a better future. We'll wrap up today's episode with a black history fact from our very own Danny Gore Sr. Let's get into the conversation. It was just listening to a, a podcast where Ursula Burns, the, the, the retired CEO of Xerox, was chatting with Bakari Sellers on his podcast. And she was passionate. She, you know, and she, she used the exact same words about fighting, you know, fighting, you know, not don't fix, don't just fix people, fix the system, right? That we get so fixated on all those people are trying to do to us. Well, guess what? <laughs> they, yeah, that that's right. So they created a system that they're they're kind of running, and unless we fight to change the system and get engaged in in fighting that, that then it, uh, you know, then we won't see that change. And the other thing I think you really kind of allude to as well, which I think you all all was saying regarding to to gifted and talented, and what Ursula was talking about was this notion of STEM and why more women and young girls and certainly just just diverse people aren't in you know, STEM is just this kind of secret code that fights against progress is like, well, they're not in it because, oh, well, we didn't tell them about that class over there or how they could take this class or this workshop or go to this seminar that's hosted here that only certain people are getting invited to. Uh, so as we as we kind of look at those those action steps and and the tips and advice, Naomi, how how are you getting others involved? How do you how are you building this campaign for change and be and and kind of activating your advocacy? Um, for me, it comes from a place of telling, explain to people how really important their voice is. Um, you know, when you come from a marginalized community, you're sort of beaten and battered to the point where you go, you throw your hands up and say, no one listens to me anyway. Like, what can I do? Um, so I'm in, I'm very intentional, um, 
in what I say and how I say it and how I share it. So while my social media, like I have different channels of social media, um, only one of them is actually open to the public. The other two are literally for people that I personally know, like real, like I really, really know them, <laughs> not a friend of a friend, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm really intentional on showing people that this narrative that you are often told by society that, you know, only the people with the haves get ahead and the have not stay behind is absolutely false. And it's an intentional narrative because the truth is, is that the way this construct is built is built intentionally to exclude people of color because they fear the power that people of color will have. And you're seeing that now. We lived through a presidency that was filled with rhetoric to the point where it empowered people to really be overtly racist. And in some aspects, you know what? I actually respect that more because I feel like in New York State, we're the bluest of the blue state, but we have this coded, you know, very secretive, coded language of racism. Um, that someone that I know really well said, New York has a type of racism um, that is a warm hug, but they are stabbing you in the back with a knife. And I thought that was like beautifully said because, you know, at least down South, it's in your face <laughs> and you can navigate that better personally. I, I can navigate a racist a lot better than these coded, you know, progressive racists. Um, so I use my social media intentionally for that. Um, and I, I want people to see that the little things matter. So for instance, several years ago, um, many parents were getting annoyed with the amount of charter mailers that we were getting. And it was a system where we could not opt out and we certainly did not opt in. And it was uh, a long um, privilege that a previous mayor had given the charter school system where they can they can have access to all public school parent data as long as they paid a vendor that accessed our data to send out these pamphlets. And what was creating was sort of this buzz about these schools that, you know, as we all know, doesn't really serve every single kid in the system. Um, and we got annoyed with it. You know, there was a there was a, a parent that filed a lawsuit, and those of us that were not on the lawsuit, I made it explicitly my campaign. I someone told me save all those mailers. And I was like, you know why I didn't think of that. I got to the point where I had like over 20 mailers, and I have three, I have four kids, you know, at the time. So I was getting like double, triple, you know, sets of things. And you know, because I'm a a leader in my community, I got to build relationships with reporters and all this. And every time I was in a space and I had media in the space, I I remember one meeting particularly in front of the mayor, I took out all my mailers and I said, I don't want this anymore. I didn't ask for this, I want out. And media, like one of the reporters attracted, stopped me, said, let's do a story on this. And what ended up happening is the push became so real that they had to act. And now there's a form 
that parents are given where you can opt out of getting these mailers. And that was literally because of the pressure that all of us collectively did, legally, on the ground. And I use that as an example to tell parents, you have a voice. It's about how you use it and how you want to advocate for it. So, you know, I, it's funny during birthdays, you know, when Facebook says when it's your birthday, um, I always get a couple of messages, private messages from people saying, you know, I watch what you do. You're so inspiring. You, you've helped me find my voice. And I often live life like I'm dancing in the rain and no one's watching. I just put stuff out there and I hope it lands on one person. So I always get a message here and there, someone going, you know, I love what you do, keep doing it. You know, you're inspiring me to do something else. And that's what like, I live for, because I want to be able to help people find their voice. You know, there's youth now that are doing some amazing work. And I, I am so envious of that because I was just like Camille, I was a really shy kid. Um, and I didn't find my voice, you know, to about 15 years ago. Imagine if I found my voice as a teen, oh my God, I would be running the city. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late, Naomi. No, it's not too late. We can do a writing campaign. Just briefly for explanation, tell tell folks what what role you have, uh, your official role, kind of in what you do uh, in, in yeah. education. So um, my unpaid official role, because <laughs> all these things are unpaid, um, is I am president of a school district um, in our school district. They call them. They don't call them school boards. They call them community education councils. Um, so I'm the president of school district one. Um, and that encompasses Lori side and East village. And I have, you know, about 20,000 NYCHA units with just within my development, tiny little corner of the district, but we're, we're mighty. That's good to know. And, and just FYI, Ursula Burns is a NYCHA child. Lower East Side project. So she talks about that in this podcast and apparently in her book that's out that the title of her book is, is where you where you are from is not who you are, which I think you all have all identified this in, in so many different ways. Yeah, Camille, you're, you're I'm sorry, you're fighting the good fight in so many different ways as well. Talk about how you're inspiring others to try to get involved and, and what, you, what your message to them is. Thanks, Neil. Um, so like Naomi, I also am the president of our um, local community education council, District 15 in Brooklyn. And um, that gives me a lot of ability to access our 30,000 families. Um, so it's a lot of people. And there's a wide variety of, um, of, of uh, families that live there. Um, we have a large uh, English language learner population. We have a lot of families um, live, living in temporary housing. We have a lot of families that live in nature residences. And there is extreme poverty in part of our um, district and then there's extreme wealth in another part. So um, it's a very, very large district with a lot of challenges. Um, in our district, we have an incredible superintendent who um, along with our council has been completely motivated for quite a few years now 
to create a lot of opportunities for students where there were none. Um, so lots of teamwork in a variety of different ways, um, all sort of moving towards the same goal. And that has helped us to um, make a lot of changes and have a lot of success in um, seemingly a short period of time. Um, but one thing that we really value in the district is a whole child model. And um, as, as I was saying before, when you're looking at academic tracking exclusively, you're not really um, considering uh, the social and emotional well-being of children. You really create a lot of problems where problems don't need to be. Um, so, so, so I have taken it upon myself to <laughs> invest a lot of my personal time um, creating workshops and various committees where I um, where I help to bring in speakers from all over New York City, um, some that work at the DOE and others that don't, um, researchers to just talk about advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so I, I have uh, a series of eight videos that talk about this and um, they've become very popular, which I'm really proud of. We also had had this um, two-year process for engaging voices in an elementary school rezoning. And, um, you know, what most people think about when they think about rezoning is hundreds of people in the room cursing and screaming and anxious and um, demanding that, uh, you know, the line be moved from here to there. But what we, what we did in this year and during the pandemic um, was that we, we engaged with a participatory action research team and we found um, parents and community advocates from all over that sub-district where, where these elementary schools were to actively engage and do outreach to um, specifically families that had traditionally not had their voices heard in these kind of conversations. And because um, we took the time and we didn't race through the process, um, we really had a positive outcome that helped elevate one of our struggling schools to become, um, to actually uh, grow from an elementary school into middle school. And that really supported the need that uh, was in that particular community. It was something that the people living in the community really were looking for. And um, this is this is a, a largely black and brown area in Brooklyn. And so very, very happy to be able to um, offer uh, them opportunities to have a middle school in this area where one had not existed previously. And um, we were able to collectively look at the data in all of the seven elementary schools and really um, highlight the schools that were very segregated, schools that had a high density of um, poverty and collectively come together and figure out um, an admissions plan that could help 
allow, um, could help families still um, be zoned for a school close to home, but um, allow additional seating for others who want to come um, into those other schools that they didn't normally have access to. And so we um, created some priority seating in the admissions that would allow for greater diversity and equity and inclusion. And additionally, we were able to advocate for um, District 75 seats. Um, I'm not sure how broad this podcast is going to go, but um, these are seats for students who might have advanced medical needs um, and a variety of other special needs that don't um, typically uh, fall into a um, ICT setting or um, like a, a public school setting that is they, they need more supports than, than the average student with disabilities. And so um, those families previously had had to leave our district to find appropriate settings for their children. And this is really just not okay. Um, so we are regularly trying to advocate for more and more and more inclusion. And I'm happy to say that um, we did maintain and um, we were able to get a lot of seats for, for this District 75 um, students. So it's, it's all great news. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was the least controversial zoning probably of all time. And it's because all, ver all voices were heard in the process and very happy to have been a part of that. Um, like Naomi was saying, it's really important to be in contact with your elected officials and make sure that you understand how the laws are actually um, segregating our schools and our classrooms. And so um, it's really important to read the bills that are put out that are going to be voted on in the Senate and Assembly and um, to encourage more equitable laws, which which we do, the three of us, on a regular basis together. Um, and then I would say that just, you know, for anybody who wants to do this work, is ready to take it on, um, make sure that you have a strong support team. Like, Naomi and Chino and I are in regular conversations with each other and we really are able to bounce ideas off of each other all the time. Um, but for me, I actually have friends from my past, two from elementary school who I love dearly and um, one of them in particular who has an incredible memory and um, I, I seek out her uh, vast knowledge as often as I can because it, it really helps to ground me and to help me to recall stories from my past that sometimes I have forgotten even for the sake of self-preservation. Um, but I would say that it's, it's very, very important to um, make sure that you have safe spaces to have challenging conversations as you try to advance your own understanding of this world that we're living in and create more opportunities for other people.
Yeah, that's that's great advice, and I, I want to toss it to each of you and just to kind of quickly, you know, maybe in a, in a sentence or a couple words, if, if for those parents who may be listening, uh, or those families who are listening in, uh, those advocates who are listening in to the podcast, what's I'll start with you, Sheena. What's your advice uh, uh, in this notion that you know? Black Lives Matter in education, that your voice does matter. Uh, and quite honestly, the problem is when there are no voices, then everyone thinks it's okay. But what's your advice of, of that, of, of, of why it's important for uh, folks to get involved and make their voices heard? Um, wow, that's a tough question. So speaking as an Asian American, Right. This is sort of a, a topic that comes up. Okay? Like, why should Asian Americans care? Um, because, you know, we we some of us are saying, well, Asian lives matter, too. Well, of course. But I think this is something that I came to realize right after 9-11. 2001, that is how quickly people turn on a group of people of color, right? And sure, that was a tragic event. And I lived with the fumes because I'm not too far from the World Trade Center, but how quickly the entire country turned against a whole group of people without knowing who they were. And that was a reminder to me. And I used to joke to my friends, like all I need is an East Asian terrorist for all my privileges to be taken away. Because the privilege that I do have in this country, it's not for me to decide to keep or shed. It's out of my hands. It's the white supremacist system that decides when it's convenient for me to have privilege to align with the white power structure, they'll give it to me. But the minute that it becomes inconvenient, they will take it away from me. And that is something that I would love for Asian American parents to understand, one with the privilege that is. And there are a lot of those who are fighting against the equity work. They do have privilege. They may not admit it, but they do. And they really just have to understand how this system operates, how this system uses us as the wedge. And if they could just understand that little piece of history and how the structure works, they should be able to join our movement. And our movement is really based on love and restoring humanity. Who wouldn't want that, right? We're not mobilizing people based on fear. Yes, there is fear of violence against us, but what we are really advocating for is a vision of a different society where we reclaim our humanity, whether you're a white, black, brown, or Asian. And that kind of creation of a community based on love, how would you not want to join us? I think it's, you know, that's sort of, um, I guess one advice I can give is it's okay to be against something, but it's always more effective to be for something. And what you want to fight for should be inspirational 
aspirational and visionary. It may be unrealistic. I know we're not going to get there in my lifetime, but it's still that vision of a loving, humane society free of racism. That drives me, right? That's something that I want to really work hard for. That's something that I'm willing to take some horrible racist comments targeted against me. I'm willing to take those comments because that is the vision I'm working for. And I think it's really important to keep that kind of a positive, loving vision that propels you forward. And this is a community. It's a community of people who are driven by the same values. And it's very nurturing. And we keep each other accountable. Like Camille said, we create a safe space where we can actually say what we need to say and hold each other accountable when we mess up, but in a loving, nurturing way. And it's such a a nourishing space to find myself in. I want everybody else to have that experience. It really is an amazing space to share with these amazing activists. Even when we mess up, we know how to call each other in and grow together. And who wouldn't want that? Thank you, Shia. That was wonderful. That was just powerful. Uh, Camille, you offered some thoughts about this this notion of, of how we can understand each other better. What's your, please share that bit of advice to us. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the more that we learn about each other and people who are different than us, the more we can understand people and see them as individuals and not as like one race. Um, And so, you know, just about what Sheena was saying about after 9-11 and, um, you know, and and even right now with with the pandemic, um, you know, people are targeted because of their race. And so the more that you're going to know about somebody in particular, somebody that's different than you, it's just going to stop hate. And... um, like, I, I mean, I just, I can't even imagine like a moment where something tragic would happen in the world where I would latch on to, you know, some idea about, oh, it's like that particular population or, um, you know, I, I just, I really try to see people as individuals with so much opportunity for growth and development. And it doesn't matter what age you are. Um, I I spend a lot of time having conversations with people of all ages. Um, I know people that are in their 90s. And I always ask them very challenging questions about their youth. Like, um, you know, for my own purposes, because I want to hear about their stories and what they've lived through. And I also want to share with them my experiences in the world um, and and how I see the world in this time. And I really think that these conversations that we have with each other, that we're willing to have, that we're able to put ourselves out there, um, just help to create more understanding um, of the world and help 
us to connect with one another and not feel so lonely and not feel so isolated and not just feel, um, you know, that, that you have to survive in this world by yourself, um, like a, you know, sort of kill or get killed mentality. Like we really can create systems of equity that support all of, all of us, all each other, um, our children, and just, you know, I mean, it just sounds like fluff when you talk about it this way, but I really do think that we can make this world a better place for all people. And, and it, it really just, um, you know, it takes time. It takes, uh, you know, more understanding, more love, more forgiveness, but we all have that capacity and we can all do it if, if we really want to, and, and we can do it together. I think that's so true, and I don't think it's it's uh, it's idealistic. I think you, you know, clearly what you all are showing in this conversation is that uh, you, your your friendship, your support, your passion about the issues are driving some change in those communities. Naomi, uh, I'll, I'll allow you to add you know some of your insight there as well as is what's that advice you might give to others and in and how we continue to fight forward and forge forward with change. Um, for me, I have been, I firmly believe that all this starts super young. This literally starts the minute a child walks into the classroom. Um, so just like Sheena alluded to before, I was super intentional in what schools I wanted my children to be in because I wanted them to be surrounded with a diverse group of kids. Um, and I use this as an example all the time. Um, two of my daughter's best friends, you know, my Latin, my Spanish looking daughter, two of her best friends is a girl who's Muslim and a Chinese American girl. Um, and that for me is the most um, utopian, beautiful experience ever. Because my daughter can tell you about the culture that her Muslim friend has. And then my daughter can tell you about the foods that her Chinese friend loves to eat. Um, and I think that's why it's really important. And I, I coupled with that, I think we also need to have a really honest conversation about why culturally responsive education matters and specifically why black lives in schools matter. Because for every utopian school you can find, you're gonna find a slew of schools that are not like that. Um, and in order to dismantle these structures, you have to start taking them apart. And th that's why there's a push in certain parts of this country and also amongst these newly cropped um, organizations that I, their fear monger is that when you, in order to keep a structural system in place, you need to not introduce any new information. You need to maintain the narrative. You need to maintain that, that dialogue. So there is separation amongst people. Um, but the minute you introduce something new, culturally responsive education, you start to dismantle those pieces. 
And then children start to realize that probably what they're being told at home is not true. And that's another, you know, pill that parents are going to have to swallow. They don't want to be challenged. Look, you know, colorism exists even in, in, in our own very cultures, right? Um, the lighter you are, the highly more favored you become. You know, there, there was always, there's always been a narrative around that in every single community. And I think even now, you know, a couple of weeks, last week in the Heights came out. Amazing story, talking about the Latin experience in New York City. But it lacked Afro-Latin individuals in the movie as leads. And that is exactly why it is important to elevate these stories because, you know, we come in different shades from the lightest of the light to the darkest of the dark in all cultures, in all cultures. Um, and, and, and there's a big fear around that. But I also think there, there's a huge plus because it actually helps our children realize that they are just as important. I shouldn't have had to learn about the young lords in college. I shouldn't have to had seen myself and my struggle you know, in a Puerto Rican's history class at Hunter College through a documentary. I just shouldn't have. Um, I took my son to see John Leguizamo's um, Latin History for Morons intentionally. You know, I shouldn't have to pay a Broadway show ticket to have my young brown man see why his culture matters and the impact it had on this country unbeknownst to him. Um, and if we start teaching children that from the very onset, the world would be an amazing place of belonging, understanding. Um, and, and that's what people fear. I mean, look, the Rainbow Coalition was dismantled intentionally for a reason, right? You do not want a, heart, a large group of people joining forces against one entity. You just don't want that. It's easier to divide and conquer. Um, and they've done that successfully but i think there look you know in the next couple of decades um we're outnumbering them look I, I i added to that number having four of my own right um so i think um and i say that all the time when we're like oh you have four kids yeah because i i needed to, to advance the numbers quicker <laughs> um but i think you know that that that's that's the end game here is to create a society where we start to know about ourselves from the minute we walk in a classroom at an early age and feel empowered, feel special, know that we've contributed to this country. Um, so as adults, we start to, you know, see, see when there's a fog screen in front of us and start critically thinking um, when something doesn't, you know, when we all had those experiences as child of going, this doesn't feel right, but you don't have the, ling the language to address it. Now imagine if we did have that language as young children, like the impact that we could have had possibly on adults if we said something back and you know, that makes an impact on them. You all are, uh, are amazing. Uh, you know, we've discussed so many uh, critically important issues today on race, self-segregation, assimilation systems uh, created to build barriers and not facilitate learning and growth. I mean, you all have made it so clear is how dumb this all seems when you step back and look at it and say, what's the point? What are we learning? Well, how are we 
changing society, which I think, you know, Naomi, you kind of said is this is about changing society for good. I mean, and you all have alluded to that. You know, we've discussed your own personal backgrounds and how they've impacted your lives throughout you know, everything you've done, but really now as parents and clearly as leaders in uh, the community, in your schools, um, you know, just, you know, this is what's so fascinating, right? You have, each of you have these unique backgrounds, but you're collectively working toward this common goal, uh, which is making schools a place where our children get access to everything they can to become extraordinarily successful. And as you all have so eloquently said, when they are more successful, we all benefit from that. So thank you, Camille Casaretti. Thank you, Naomi Peña. Thank you, Shina Tanikoa, for your time, your courage, your passion, your ideas, your energy. I know uh, we've really just scratched the surface in this conversation and I look forward to maybe having uh, future conversations as, as you continue to drive for change. This is a Black History Fact brought to you by Danny Gore and the new three R's. The first challenge to segregated education arose not in the South, but in the pre-Civil War New England. Benjamin F. Roberts, a Negro active in Massachusetts anti-slavery society, tried on four separate occasions to enroll his five-year-old daughter, Sarah, in an all-white primary school in Boston. Roberts hired two lawyers and sued on behalf of his daughter in the case of Roberts versus the city of Boston. Though his lawyers argued against this segregation to the best of their ability, the courts ruled against them. This is a Black History Fact brought to you by Danny Gore and the New Three R's.